in any case, he's a man of great integrity. He too is a lawyer, which explains my desire to become a lawyer myself. He's a civil rights activist as I am. So there's something to be said about genes and genetics. Hello, you are listening to NPE Stories. This is a podcast where NPEs can share their story. I am your host, Lily, and I found out I was an NPE through an ancestry DNA test that changed my life forever. NPE is a term that stands for not parent expected or non-paternal event. This means that one or more of our parents are not who we believe them to be. NPE Stories is a podcast where NPEs can share their story of what their original family was like, how they found out they were an NPE, and what their journey has been like since the day they found out. And welcome to episode 180. And today I am speaking with Reggie. Hi, Reggie. Hi, Lily. How are you? I'm so good. And can I just say thank you? I just noticed you were patron to the NPE Stories Patreon page. Thank you so much for for your donations and helping me out. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank what you do is very valuable and if I can assist in any way, um, I'm more than happy to do that. Oh, I love that so much. I know that you have a busy week ahead of you. You actually educated me on something in your hometown. So thank you for fitting this in before your week. Can we just mention that really briefly? What is going on in in Wilmington this week for you? Sure, happy to. And I'm happy to have been able to make this work in terms of the timing. So 125 years ago, next week, will mark um, the anniversary of um, the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, which is the only successful coup on American soil. Uh, and what happened was white supremacists overthrew a duly elected biracial uh, government, black and white leaders uh, and elected positions and business people and so on and so forth. And white supremacists overthrew that and massacred and killed, you know, at least 60, but some say several hundred black people uh, and chased countless others out of the town for them to never return. Um, and so next, starting tomorrow, actually, begins a week of events that commemorate uh, that tragic event that I will admit, growing up in Wilmington, no, no one ever discussed, so I never heard anything about. Right. Um, so that's what's happening. Yeah, when we were scheduling this interview and you explained what was going on in Wilmington this week, the 125th anniversary. I did not know what the Wilmington Massacre was. I looked it up. I'd never heard of it. I had my kids read it. My husband, we were horrified that we had not heard about this in history. And and you grew up there, right? And you did not. This this was something that was not spoken about until, what'd you say, till like your 40s you found out about it? Yeah. So it was not spoken about, certainly wasn't taught in schools, not even spoken about. I think what really got more people to learn about it was the 100th anniversary of it, which was in 1998. And I was happening, to, I happened to be living in New York City at the time in my 30s. And just in casual conversation, somebody mentioned it to me. And 
I was dumbfounded and flabbergasted that someone else knew who wasn't from there, but I, I didn't. Um, and then in subsequent years, it became a little better known, but still not very much known. And I will say that for me, the way that I really began to learn kind of extent of it um, was the publication of a book in January of 2020 called Wilmington's Lie by David Zucchino. And it ultimately went on to win a Pulitzer Prize, but it was chock full of detailed information, um, such a thoroughly, beautifully researched book. And and since I've learned, I've really been on a kick to get everybody else to know about it, because not only um, was the white supremacy campaign that became the Wilmington Massacre of 1898 successful in Wilmington, North Carolina, it became the blueprint for similar white supremacy campaigns in North Carolina and, and in the South in general. Oh. So the more people who know about it, the more we'll understand our history, but also the way that that history continues to play out in present society. Yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm obsessed with it. And Lily, I'm really glad that you and your family took some time to get to um, to know about it. Yes, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I know you have a busy week in front of you. I'll put the link for Wilmington's Lie, the book you mentioned below. That sounds like an amazing resource. And yeah, sorry for throwing this on you. I know I didn't warn you to to mention it. I just thought it was really important to to bring this up. Yeah, and I always like talking about this. So, right? so it didn't feel like an imposition at all. I'm really glad that you mentioned it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to to talk about it. And so I know that you you had some of your childhood in Wilmington. And let's move into your NPE story. Why don't you tell me who was in your, your family of origin and talk a little bit about what your childhood was like. Happy to do so. So I spent my entire childhood in Wilmington, actually, until I went off to college. So I was born and raised in Wilmington, North Carolina. I was the third of five children to uh, a single mother who raised us all on her own. Um, it was a challenging time, honestly, because we were profoundly poor. Um, and again, a single mother trying to do it all on her own. We grew up on public assistance and that kind of meager, but deeply important you know, support from the government was supplemented by my mom working as a, as a domestic or maid um, for not very much, just so that you know we could try our best to have enough food to eat. So we were housing insecure. Uh, we were food insecure. Winters were really cold. Summers were hot. And we just did our best to survive. And our mother was a loving, kind mother, um, but she struggled to raise five children on her own. And she had her first child at age 15. Um, and despite having her own dreams and aspirations and deep, deep intelligence, you know, the time that she gave birth to my oldest brother, which was in 1959, uh, schools required you to drop out of school if you became pregnant while in school. So she did. She had to drop out at age 15 when my brother was born. Um, and then she never went back. So she never really had the support she she needed to survive um, and to return, essentially to return to what she had wanted to do, which was pursue a career. I think she really wanted to be 
like an, like an, an administrative secretary because she was really smart and detail oriented and loved to write and all of that stuff. But she never got a chance to, to do that. You know, that said, it wasn't all uh, bad. Uh, you know, we were young kids, so we didn't have the benefit of a broader perspective. So we knew only what we knew, which was that, you know, we had each other to play with. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, liked spending time with each other. You know, we had to make our own toys because we, we couldn't really afford any. But, you know, children can be creative. And so we made do with what we had. It was only in retrospect that I understood those dynamics better with the benefit and experience of becoming older, living life a bit, learning things. And I understood, I think, why some of those dynamics were at play, but not as much while I was, while I was growing up. When you were a child, did your mother ever speak about who your dad was or did you ever have any visitation with him? So, yes, there was a lot of conversation about who our dad was, because we all had been told, taught, led to believe that all five of us had the same father, um, who was a deadbeat. So he ended up denying paternity of all five of us, which we know was not true. Um, so I had no reason to question my mother or doubt her. I just knew that this man who was all of our father, you know, didn't help with, uh, you know, taking care of any of us. So, so I knew that he was not honest, but there was a lot of conversation about, you know, we're struggling in part because this guy isn't taking care of his responsibility uh, as a father of five children, leaving our mother to do all of that work. Mm -hmm. I've learned that, um, you know, they were childhood sweethearts. So I think that in sixth grade is when they started kind of seeing each other. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then they, you know, they quickly had a child together at age 15. Then my next brother was born um, five years later in 1964, when my mother would have been 20. And he uh, would have been 20 as well. And then I came along two years later when my mother was 22. She quickly had my sister the next year and then another sister the following year. So we all came along pretty quickly starting when my mom was like 20 through 24. And then after that, I think she had a two obligation to not have any, any more children. This I normally don't ask about grandparents, but just out of curiosity, your I guess your birth certificate father, were his parents, were they like grandparent, were they grandparent type roles for you growing up? So I confirm recently after my DNA discovery that none of us had a father listed on our birth certificates. Hmm. And that I think is likely because my mother never married. And so none of us had anybody listed on our birth certificate other than our mother. But the answer to your question is no, we did not have anybody acting in a paternal grandparent role, Mm -hmm. uh, really ever. We knew who they were, but they had no relationship with us. They had a 
better relationship with my oldest brother, but even that wasn't anything to write home about. Um, likewise, with respect to my maternal grandparents, she helped raise my older brother in part, but she and my mother never had a close relationship. Um, and then her husband actually was not my mother's biological father. So my mother herself was an NPE. Okay. And I think she was born uh, in 1944 when uh, the man she thought was her father was serving in the military in the Philippines. But when he was away, my grandmother, you know, had a relationship with someone else who was in fact my mother's biological father. So we really didn't have, I mean, we knew who these people were, but none of them were especially close to us. My, my maternal grandmother was the closest thing that we had, but she had a troubled life and was not especially close or kind to my mother. And what I've learned is that when she was born, she, quote unquote, gave my mother away to her younger sister. I don't know what that was about necessarily. I don't know if she was trying to... Um, shield the fact that she had had a relationship while her husband was in, was fighting in a war, or if my um, if my if her younger sister wanted a child. I don't know what it was, but suffice it to say, she and my mother never had a really close relationship. But she was our grandma, so that's what we, we referred to her as, and we loved her and thought she was funny, and she certainly had some issues. That relationship between her and my mother was never really close. As I said, my mother was an NPE too, and the man who she thought was her biological father was extremely abusive of her as a child, including sexually. Mm -hmm. So I later learned uh, when I was in law school and was asked to speak on a panel about public, public assistance and growing on welfare, etc., I later learned all this because I interviewed my mother because I wanted to understand why someone with such intelligence never really was able to achieve all the things she wanted to achieve in her life. And so what I realized is that she experienced abuse and trauma um, that got in the way of her being able to pursue her dreams. Mm -hmm. And it started, you know, I had to ask these difficult questions and I, and I finally was able to understand why her life kind of turned out the way that it did. And so she shared with me, it was, wasn't an easy conversation to have, but she finally shared with me. I was, I was in my, you know, kind of mid twenties then about to graduate from law school. And, and this is what I, for the very first time heard, I interviewed her about what challenges had happened that kept her from pursuing her dreams. And she said, you know, her, her stepfather, someone she thought was her actual father began sexually abusing her when she was four years old. Um, and it continued until she had kind of a breakdown and had to be hospitalized. And so that was at age 13. And the very next year, she became pregnant at age 14 uh, and then had my oldest brother when she was 15. Mm -hmm. So all of that happened to her. She never was able to get the support she needed. Even when she reported what had happened to her, I think her mother initially didn't believe it. Um, and so I think because of that, there was their relationship was never, ever warm. I don't know 
if she even blamed my mother for the problems in her marriage because they they divorced. And um, so, yeah, so that's that. Isn't that hard when you have to hear about your mom's trauma? You just find so much empathy for them finding out about the horrific things they yeah. went through. And I'm I'm sorry, that sounds like it was a very hard conversation to have when you interviewed your mom. Yeah, but thank you. It it was heartbreaking because for a number of reasons. Number one, it happened. Number two, she didn't get the support she needed. Number three, it really became a pattern of of men who should have loved her and taken care of her uh, doing the opposite. Yes. And then finally, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a fixer. I'm an activist and an advocate, but there's nothing that I could have done to protect her. Yeah. Obviously. The one thing I did do is I sent who we thought was our biological grandfather, our maternal grandfather, because she never talked about it. So we always grew up thinking this was our grandfather. So we had, you know, we were fond of him. But I was so angry when I learned that, that I sent him a letter um, telling him that I knew and that I expected that he would die alone, rot in hell. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, that was, that was the only way that I could, I could figure out how to strike back at this person who had really devastated my mother's life and set her on a pattern of um, ab abusive relationships and uh, ones that, you know, she deserved better and to not have to have, have had those experiences. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, terribly heartbreaking. And yes, like you said, you, you can see this, the patterns, the cycles that yeah. occur from this sort of childhood. Yeah. Abuse and trauma. Yeah. She, um, she settled for relationships that were not good. Yeah. Not a number because she, too many, right? She had just a couple in her life, frankly. But again, she never married, yet she had five children. So I think she was a person worthy of marriage. And then the last relationship she had was one that was filled with physical and domestic abuse that we as children witnessed. So, you know, on top of the poverty was this one really um, challenging, difficult, traumatic, uh, violent relationship that she endured for years before he died and that we as children had to see. And I will say this, Lily, and I know this is all quite heavy. But she was a loving, lovely, positive person. Mm. She was everybody's favorite favorite um, aunt and uh, cousin. And just all the kids in the neighborhood adored her. We never had much, but whatever we had, kids could come over. And she would always have a, a place for them to stay if they needed to spend the night. Or she would divide, you know, <laughs> the, the, the food by just, you know, one small meal more for someone who was in need. So she was just a generous, thoughtful, giving, compassionate person who never said a bad word about anybody. Mm -hmm. And so who really deserved so much more than uh, she ever got. She, she had, she contracted breast cancer for the very first time in her late thirties. I was, uh, I'd started college um, and then she ultimately succumbed from ovarian cancer probably about 20 years after that in 2004. Mm. So 
I was in my mid-30s when she uh, when she died at age 60 from ovarian cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. She Thank sounds you. like a, a lovely mother, a lovely woman. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And she, and she was. And I will say this. I never felt that I was treated differently than my siblings at all. I looked like my mom. Um, I was I was different though, right? Growing up, I was felt different, but it wasn't because I was treated differently. It was because my interests were different. I was very academically oriented. Um, I was ambitious. You know, I wanted to make something of my myself and my life. Um, and I was an activist at an early age. So whenever I spotted something that struck me as unfair or unjust, I spoke up about it. Um, and I'm certainly, I certainly was the only one, you know, in my family that at age six, you know, talking about my si- siblings, that at age six decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. And that was, um, I, want, I decided I'd become a lawyer. And the way that that happened <laughs> was because I was a very inquisitive kid. So whenever anybody came to visit, I would just get them off in the corner. I would ask them, you know, if they would read to me. I would ask them their favorite color. I would ask them about their relationships with their siblings. And I certainly asked them about their relationships with their parents too, particularly their father. I think the child in me knew that something was missing and that I didn't have a a father figure and so I wanted to know about everybody else's relationships. And so in any case, more than one of them said to me, slow down, kid, you sound like a lawyer. <laughs> and I had a moment. So I was six years old and I decided I'd become a lawyer because I thought if I could ask people questions to quench my curiosity, then, then by George, that's what, I'm, that's what I was going to do. I had no idea what lawyers did, but I thought if they asked questions, then at least I got to do that. And it was later, after I had lived a bit, observed a bit, saw people struggle, particularly Black people in uh, recently integrating South, but had been segregated for some time. I very much knew that I wanted to pursue a career in civil rights, law, and activism. And then ultimately, that is what I, that is what I did. So it sounds like you never had any suspicions that your your dad wasn't your dad. And then how and when did you find out you were an NPE? Yeah, I had no suspicions that I had a different father. And the way that I found out was um, I was home. I was living in Philadelphia and working in Philadelphia at the time. But every year I would like rent a condo at Carolina Beach in Wilmington, near Wilmington, and have, you know, family come over. So at least we'd have like a day of going to the beach and, you know, having like a cookout and getting together as a family. And so in 2019, I was having dinner with one of my cousins who had come down like the day before, like the entire family was going to get together. We were having dinner and she talked to me and mentioned that she had recently done an Ancestry.com test and how exciting and interesting it was and things that she had learned, et cetera. And she said, you might want to do one. I was like, I don't think so. Like, I like I feel like I know pretty much what my identity is. So, you know, I'm not sure I, I, I need to do that. She said, it's really fascinating. You'd be surprised at what you learn. I said, well, so 
will admit that I have been interested in knowing a bit more about like my African ancestry, like where exactly my African uh, ancestors originated from. Uh, and I also am interested in whether I have any Native American ancestry too, particularly growing up in the South, there's just a lot of that uh, inter intermingling. And then the final thing I thought was maybe also I could learn a bit about any European ancestry I might have too, because again, I grew up in the South and we know the relationships that often happen between enslaved people and enslaved masters. So I agreed to do it. And then a couple of weeks later, I got my results and was, was shocked, to say the least, that there was no evidence in those results at all um, that tied me to the man who I thought was my biological father. That was in, I think, maybe October of 2019. And I thought to myself, well, if it's not him, then who is it? And so thus began a journey of trying to figure out who exactly it was. I was having no luck on the, you know, in the databases of either Ancestry.com or by that time I'd also done 23andMe and wasn't learning a whole lot. I was getting a lot of information about relatives on my mother's side, but not so many on my father's side. It just Honestly, you know, I would learn a little bit more through fits and starts, but not like enough to really crack open the case. And so fast forward about a year beyond that, a year or two, I'm talking to a good friend of mine um, who uh, had been battling cancer for several years and was nearing the end of his life. And Sam had been adopted and wanted to um, learn who his biological parents were before he passed away. And so he enlisted the help of a colleague of his, Deb, uh, both of whom he and Deb worked at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., which is where they lived. And Deb was kind of an amateur genealogist. He was really, really, really good at it. And she was able to help Sam track down his birth mother initially, who had gone on to make an amazing career for herself and just was not able or willing at that point to um, start a relationship with Sam. Um, but she did agree to having one phone call with him. She blocked her number so that he couldn't trace her, but they spoke. Um, and, um, and the one thing that she did share with Sam was the name of his birth father. A couple of months later, Sam is closer to death. And so his good friend, Deb, who had helped him find both parents, asked him if he wanted her to reach out to his birth father. And Sam hesitated because he was afraid of being rejected again, ultimately. But as he's nearing death, he's now in hospice at home at this point. He relented and said, I would like to know. I'd like to be in touch with him bef before I die. So um, Deb reached out to Sam's biological father 
uh, on Sam's behalf. And uh, he was, this guy was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. And so Deb called him. He picked up the phone. Deb explained. Um, and he said, I've been waiting for this call for 50 years. So thank you. And absolutely, I want to speak to my son. And so the next day, he hopped in his car and drove from Phoenix, Arizona to Falls Church, Virginia, which is where Sam was living at the time with his wife and family. And so he got there in time for him and Sam to to meet and connect, compare similarities and differences. And then at some point he had um, to go back to work. And then a couple of days, uh, Sam died. But there's a beautiful, beautiful story uh, in the New York Times, front page of the New York Times that tells their story. And and there's a beautiful photo of the two of them kind of holding hands, uh, having finally met each other. I share all that to say uh, Deb is kind of a rock star (laughs) to have helped Sam identify his parents and then, you know, force that connection before Sam passed away. I also share that to say that before he died, Sam introduced me to Deb, who agreed to help me find my biological uh, father. And it took some time and it was in fits and starts and she would make progress and then she would not. And it was particularly difficult for uh, for someone who's black, who grew up in the South, trying to identify our ancestors because there are fewer records kept of births and deaths uh, mm-hmm. and marriages, right? There's just fewer documents to help with the search. The other thing that made it difficult for black people searching for uh, ancestors uh, is because of limited mobility, first by law. Certainly during slavery, we weren't allowed to travel. And then by circumstance, we weren't allowed to travel because of financial and other constraints. So it was harder to find the information that would help us figure out our ancestry. But Deb never gave up, and she kept trying. Uh, And she finally, though, about two years into the search, said to me, "Okay, Reggie. Um, I was about to hit send my kind of final email to you saying I made it thus, you know, to a, you know, to a certain level, but then was able to not go farther than that. And she said, but before I hit sent on that email, I decided to check your results one more time. And wow, she said, there was another name who other than your sisters who had done tests after I did, just to confirm that we were, quote unquote, half siblings rather than full siblings after I made the initial discovery. But, you know, still regard each other as full siblings, but, you know, technically we're half siblings. She said, other than your half siblings, there's this one other person who shows up as a really, really high match. And she said, I said, wow. And she said, well, do you know the name? And she named the person. I was like, yeah, I know that name. I know that name well. Uh, he's the son of a good friend from high school. And she said, well, you know, he's that name. He's probably your nephew. So that good friend from high school is, is your brother. And I was like, wow. I was like, I know him really well. Because not only were we somewhat friendly in high school, we became even 
better friends when we worked at the same place during summer's home from college. We worked for the same law firm because, as I said, I had already decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and the one lawyer that I, our family knew um, is the place that I worked for those two summers. Uh, and Tony also worked there. It was Tony's father's law firm. So I was like, wow, this is really shocking to me. Uh, and immediately I wanted to reach out to Tony because we were connected on social media to let him know. So I um, was on a Monday night. I had just gotten the second COVID shot. I messaged Tony to say, hey, man, guess what? Your son and I really match uh, closely on SSG.com. And this is all via message. And Tony responded by saying, ha ha, that's pretty cool. That's funny. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I don't think Tony gets what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say. And he thought, yeah, that's pretty cool. Let's, let's talk soon. Because he was visiting his family out of town and it was getting pretty late. And I thought, I'm not going to share what I know at this point with him on uh, via, mes- via message, right? So that, that you know, that warrants a phone call. So the next day, because I'd gotten the shot, I wasn't feeling great. And I thought, I don't really want to have these kind of conversations today. So I woke up early that following day on a Wednesday. And I thought, you know, what I really need to do is I need to have this conversation with Tony's father. So we had been in touch too over the years. Again, he gave me my first job, not as a lawyer, but while I was in college and wanted to become a lawyer. So it's my first legal job. And uh, so I called him early that Wednesday morning and I say, hey, good to, good to talk to you. Good to connect. I have a couple of things I want to ask you about. And he said, um, sure. And I assume he and Tony had spoken before then. But I said, so it's very interesting that Tony, Tony's son and I met really highly on Ancestry.com. Uh, and he said, Hmm, that's that's interesting. And so my response was, "That's interesting." Well, is there any? I said, "Is there anything you want to tell me?" Uh, he said, um, "Yeah." He said, "Welcome to the family, uh, and who would not be proud to be your father?" And I said, "Well, thank you very much, because I had never really had a father. There was I had never even called anybody dad before, honestly." So that was nice to be so warmly received, number one. But I had some questions for him beyond those initial ones. I was like, did you know? Um, and he said, no, that I did not know. He said, I will admit that when you were born, some of the guides in the neighborhood kind of teased me that they thought you might be my son. He said, so what happened was I, he had moved away to college and was working as a teacher in another town, came home one, one weekend and, you know, connected with my mother that one time. I think she and the father of my other siblings had a very challenging off and on relationship. And they were on an, it was an off moment in that relationship. That continued on after I was born. I was a middle child. So I had two other older siblings and two younger siblings. All of them presumably have the same father, but I, the middle child, does not. Um, I do not, you know, have the same, uh, same father as, as they do. So 
it was a one-time thing. Um, he said he never really knew. A couple friends kind of teased him a little bit that I was kind of quote-unquote smart like he was. But he said he never had enough information to like disrupt somebody's life. So he didn't do that. Now, I have some questions, you know, almost exactly two years later, after I found out, um, I do, I wonder whether he could have done, he know, you know, he, ha- he knows how procreation works. So I wonder whether or not he, he could have, you know, made a greater effort um, to either track those rumors down or just see, particularly because um, I worked for him for two summers and we got to spend all that time together whether he had any suspicions at all. Uh, But in any case, he's a man of great integrity. Um, He too is a lawyer, which explains my, perhaps my desire to become a lawyer myself. He's a, he's a civil rights activist as I am. So there's something to be said about, you know, genes and genetics. And so we're similar in a number of ways. Yeah. So since the discovery, I've, Continued my relationship with both of my brother, Tony, who's just been excited and ecstatic about it. And with my father, we were just forging a relationship just different as family as opposed to friends. Uh, and so we've had a number of conversations and meetings. And um, I, I've since moved from Philadelphia to North Carolina in the past year, not far from my hometown. So I get to my hometown, I get to visit it a you know a lot more, and then as a result, I I do see my biological father a bit more. Did you move back to this area partly because or because of wanting to be closer to your biological father? You know that was an added bonus. The real reason is because I wanted to move back to North Carolina to. Uh, join the fight for racial justice and social justice. And North Carolina, believe it or not, used to be a more progressive state, not all that long ago. And I wanted to uh, join the fight to make it what it, in some respects, used to be, but what it could be. Um, There are so many people I admire who stayed, remained in North Carolina, stayed to engage in that battle, um, and while I've had an amazing career uh, outside of North Carolina uh, and gotten a, lots of kudos for that work, I have tremendous appreciation for those people who, who remained here to fight for the state that we want and we know that it could be. So I got an opportunity that I wasn't really looking for to return to North Carolina to, to work in that area of economic and racial and social justice so I ended up taking the job, um, but as really nice bonus of that is I get to see my father more and I get to work with him on some projects that we're working on together as well. Mm. How have you connected with, now that you know your your true paternal family, how have you connected with the, with the other members besides uh, your, I'm assuming you have more cousins, maybe aunts or uncles? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's just like I, I knew these folks growing up. I just didn't know we were related. Wow. So, you know, it's almost like the foundation was already there. Uh, and and also, it was a pretty small community that both my biological parents uh, grew up in, like like 
like their mothers, like my fathers and my mothers, mothers were like, they worked together. They drank on the front porch together. They uh-huh. were friends. My parents went to school together all throughout um, elementary and, and junior high school and, and until my mom had to drop out. Like, and so, so we were all connected in any case, uh, just as folks who were pretty close, but not we didn't know we didn't know we were related and so it's been easier because that foundation has been set have was already set and and I'm getting to and I'm getting to know them some too that the the strongest relationship is with my brother Tony just because again we you know he's a year and a half older than I went to high school together and then worked in our father's law firm for 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 two summers and then also uh, because we remained in touch through social media, it just is an easier, more seamless relationship to to cultivate. But yeah, everybody's been really warm. They've been uh, supportive. They've opened their arms uh, um, to me, and and it's it's been it's been a really lovely thing. Do you identify at all with your birth father's last last name? That's a really complicated question. So. Because my mother never married, she always maintained her maiden name. And so we received her maiden name too. Mm. What's really challenging about that is that her maiden name is her stepfather's name. Oh, right. And because I have no regard for him at all, given what I learned about him, I don't really love my last name. But because I didn't know about all of that until I had like been fairly established in my career, really, that in a way that I would seek to ever do anything about it, uh, I haven't. I've kept it for now, although I'm seriously compli- contemplating maybe um, adding my my biological father's name. Mm-hmm. So. I just haven't done any of that yet because it's all really so complicated and known in my career by the, you know, by, yeah. by the name I was, I was born. Right. US. Yes. That's very complicated. Yes, it is. <laughs> so as a result, I just haven't figured it out yet. Have you found any other siblings besides Tony? Nope. Just Tony. What's interesting is Tony thought that, you know, he was our father's only child for a really, really long time. Uh, and then, lo and behold, <laughs> many years later, we make our discovery. Um, so, you know, all we know about is the two of us. But I will say that he's been beyond uh, gracious and kind and accepting and warm. And uh, it's, just, it's just been a great relationship to, to further develop. What have you found helpful? I mean, it sounds like you had, Deb, this wonderful genealogists help you along the way, but what have you found helpful since finding out you were an NPE? Any resources you'd like to share? Sure. This podcast, mm-hmm. honestly, and I'm not saying it just because we're talking, but I've listened to just about every episode. I think I'm one episode behind and it's just been um, really helpful with processing all of this information. Because even as someone in my mid fifties to have learned that I was so secure and knowing who I am, like no questions about it, it can really throw you for a loop. And it causes you to, to question, like, who am I? I thought I was this person, but 
now I know that I that I'm a different person. And so mm-hmm. uh, just being able to listen to your podcast faithfully, but also the you know the few Facebook um, groups are were really really helpful, especially early on. Um, so those were the primary things for them that have been the most helpful to me. I know that there are some books and some maybe some documentaries or movies or other things that are out there too that I want to that I want to read and listen to and watch at some point. But my 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 work and then my other activism keep me very busy, so I I need to catch up on those things. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely amazing that you ended up in law, just like your birth father, and also working with civil rights and social justice. That's I just can't believe that. Do you see other genetic mirroring, other resemblance with him? I sure do. <laughs> it's so amazing. So, so this is what is really interesting to me. So initially, my biological father was a teacher, a history teacher. So he's a history buff, as, a, as am I. And but decided to go back to law school. Um, and what is really fascinating, and I don't recall knowing him in my childhood at all, honestly. But it's, but it's fascinating. As I told you, I decided I would become a lawyer around age six. Again, didn't really know what they did, but that was what I decided I wanted to do. And I never, ever really changed that. What is so fascinating to me is that he was starting his second career uh, as a law student really around that very same time. Mm-hmm. I was six years old. He was in his early 20s and uh, heading off to, to early to mid 20s, heading off to law school at, at about the same time. So that blows my mind, number one. Another thing that's been really cool is that since our discovery, Tony, my father and I have met up a couple of times to try to you know, cultivate and grow our our new relationship as as, as you know as, as father and sons and siblings and so on and so forth. Our, and so we try to meet. We tried to meet kind of midway. So I was living in Philadelphia at the time. Tony was in Maryland, right outside of D.C., and our father was in our hometown in North Carolina. And we decided that we'd meet in uh, Hampton, Virginia for the first time, um, you know, rented a, an Airbnb, got together and spent the weekend together, which is just really nice. What was so remarkable about that trip is that each of us, without saying a word to each other, um, brought the same book to read. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And the book was the 1619 project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Just co- completely coincidentally, we each brought the same book to read. Oh, that's unbelievable. It really is. And so similarities like that, our mannerisms are, are, are quite similar in terms of being very loyal to our families and protective of them and outspoken, outspoken about injustice uh, and like speaking up you know, when those things happen in, in our families and the community, like all of those types of things. But otherwise, kind of being fairly quiet people who um, um, can be very happy spending time on our own. Um, we're not necessarily given to talking on the phone all the time, although when we do talk, Tony and I especially, 
we can go on for an hour or so just catching up and all of that. But yeah, I've just I've noticed uh, just a lot of similarities. Reggie, if people wanted to get in touch with you directly, could they do that? Absolutely. I would love to hear from people and they can reach me uh, at my email address. So that's Reggie, my first name. Shuford, my last name, that's S-H-U as an uncle, F as in Frank, O-R-D, at gmail.com. And if you scroll down below, I will put in the link for Reggie's email address. And thank you so much for being willing to do that. And Reggie, thank you so much for coming on today. I know you have a very busy week. It was so nice to talk to you and to hear your NPE story today. Thank you, Lily, for giving me the opportunity to share. And and also just thanks for the platform. It's helped a lot of people, myself included, and I know it will continue to do so. These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us.